Well, good morning. Good morning. If you are visiting today, I am not the normal preacher, or the abnormal one, for that matter. But I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to bring the lesson today on uh, the series on the book of Ruth. I'll do my best, and whatever nonsense I present, uh, I pray that the Spirit will use the words uh, to encourage and strengthen you today. But just in case, the elders have put an eight-second delay on my microphone. But seriously, this has been an encouragement to me uh, to study and prepare this lesson. Anytime you dig deeper into the Word, you'll be blessed and encouraged. So my charge is uh, Ruth chapter 2. Now Nancy's, my wife's um, Nancy, uh, her middle name is Ruth. And I recently asked her why she was given that name. She said perhaps her mom liked uh, Ruth for her loyalty and kindness, um, which we'll learn about today. Uh, but we can't ask her. She's, she's since gone to be with the Lord. But we, unfortunately, we asked my father-in-law, and he said uh, she was named because of his ex-girlfriend. So, I don't know. <laughs> that was unfortunate. <clears throat> anyway, it, it was interesting to me when Jared uh, mentioned preaching a series on Ruth during the Advent season. Um, I've, I've only read Ruth uh, just a, in a casual way in the past, and I really didn't get that, the deeper connection. But after preparing this lesson and stealing from commentaries, um, any commentary I could get my hands on, I realized Ruth is a book of hope. Okay? Ruth is a book of promise. It's a narrative about the sovereign work of God, His care for those who turn and follow Him, the outworking of His providential plan. Now last Sunday, Jared talked about Ruth, which, uh, began, uh, which begins with great tragedy and personal devastation. He left us all very depressed. But today, this ends with the possibility of hope. And that's what we celebrate um, as we approach Christmas. The realization that there's not a whole lot right with the world, but we have hope in Christ. It begins with His birth points us toward the promise of His return. When we ask, where will our help come from? God answers, it will come from a Redeemer. For Naomi and Ruth, their immediate Redeemer is Boaz. But even as we'll see in the next few weeks, their ultimate Redeemer is ours as well, as Jesus Christ. Now a little background um, in some of the themes here. Uh, Kendrick and Jared mentioned uh, some of the background a couple weeks in the last few weeks, but uh, I need some filler, so we're going to hit some more background. <laughs> so you have this sweeping set of events that marks uh, Israel's rise from a loose consider- uh, confederation of tribes to a great kingdom, and this is documented. You can read about this in Judges and Ruth and First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles, parts of First Kings, Second Chronicles. These books are special kind of history. They not only give us information about the past, but what that information means and how God is active in the history of His people. And that's the test of, of, of our faith, to truly believe that God is active in your history, your story. You're part of a grand story, as J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings, loved to say. You're part of God's story. I'd like to share um, a, uh, a story from Ravi Zacharias. He related this story when he visited the northern city of Varanasi, India. 
This city is most famous for its spectacular and breathtaking saris that uh, every bride in India wants to wear on her wedding day. This is still on? Oh, haven't cut me off yet? Okay, good. <laughs> Never know. A sari is a female garment okay, of a cloth that is typically wrapped around the waist and then flung over the, uh, draped over the shoulder. Now, he was visiting a local factory, and he illustrates the process of weaving this beautiful sari and how God has proven himself as the grand weaver. He writes in his words, Some years ago, I was visiting a place known for making the best wedding saris in the world, saris rich in gold and silver threads, resplendent with an array of colors. I expected to see some elaborate system of machines that would boggle the mind. Not so. Each sari was made individually by a father and son team. The father sat above the son on a platform surrounded by several spools of thread that he would gather into his fingers. The son did just one thing. At a nod from his father, he would move the shuttle from, side to, um, from one side to the other and back again. This would be repeated for hundreds of hours till a magnificent pattern began to emerge. The son had the easy task, just to move at the father's nod. All along, the father had the design in his mind, and he brought the thread, the right threads, together. And Robbie goes on to say, the more I reflected on my own life and study the lives of others, I'm fascinated to see the design God has for each one of us individually, if we would only respond. Little reminders show the threads he has woven into our lives. And so in the book of Ruth and throughout the whole Bible, God is working and is active in the lives of His people. Uh, Continuing with the background, um, as Kindred and and Jared mentioned, uh, Ruth took place at the time of the Judges as described in the book of Judges. The book of Judges tells of wars and battles. It was chaos. It was Mad Max on steroids. The people were, wait for it, Buckwild. <laughs> the book focuses on the men and women by whom God delivered His people from oppressors. Judges were usually military leaders. Some had administrative duties. Some didn't lead armies at all. But by the end of the book, this loose confederacy appears to um, ready to collapse. The independent tribes were, have never been unified in worship um, or war. Uh, Four of them, Reuben, Gad, Dan, and Asher, seem not to respond to Deborah's plea to help the other tribes in battle. At the latter stages of the judges' period, the the people had fallen into idolatry and civil war, and in the final chapters, everyone did as they saw fit. They had no king. But God was working, and the end of the book points to 1 Samuel and the beginning of the monarchy. And so Ruth is this foreign woman, through whom God works to bring forth King David. So, the story of Ruth takes place in the latter parts of the book of um, um, Judges. It's a rule setting, and and wholesome characters basically provide the stark contrast um, to this uh, chaos and violence that was going on when Israel had no king. Ruth deals with what average people were doing between uh, the wars. It describes a stable society, governed by wise elders, in which the laws of the covenant were kept 
and respected. In Deuteronomy 25, for example, as we'll see in later chapters, if a man died before his wife had borne him children, the nearest male relative should marry the widow and raise up an heir um, to the one who had died. And so under this law, Ruth eventually marries Boaz, and um, um, Ruth also pit, the book of Ruth also pictures um, a more peaceful relation with uh, the neighbors than with judges. Um, Naomi is able to move back and forth um, um, between Moab takes, uh, and the sons take on Mo, uh, Moabite wives, and this mixed marriage was blessed by God, producing King David. So, we get to the book of Ruth. Okay. Jared uh, described or, or, or gave a lesson last week on the, on the book, a quick uh, Ruth chapter 1, a quick synopsis. There's a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. So Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Kilion go to Moab. Elimelech dies. Sons marry Moabite women, Opah and Ruth. Ten years later, the sons die. Now they're childless at this point. That's, that's important later on. And Naomi goes back to Judah because the famine is over. Oprah goes home. Ruth stays with Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. The famous um, uh, Scripture verse that's often used in weddings, but the context is basically not uh, for man and wife. It still fits, but uh, for a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Um, through this, uh, the biological children may be expected to... Uh, to act in this manner, but there was no corresponding obligation to, uh, for daughters-in-law. Anyway, Ruth stubbornly persists in her desire to follow Naomi. Uh, they arrive in Bethlehem. The, the barley harvest is beginning. Na Naomi, her name meaning pleasant, she changes that to Mara or bitter, and it's a depressing scene. But there's a glimmer of hope because of the beginning of the barley harvest. Synopsis of Ruth 1. Ruth 2. Ruth goes to the fields and just so happens meet Bo, meets Boaz, a relative of the clan of Elimelech, while gleaning the leftover grain. Ruth finds favor with Boaz due to her loyalty to her mother-in-law. He has heard of her remarkable decision to accompany Naomi. Later, she tells Naomi about Boaz and learns he is one of the guardian redeemers. That's the synopsis of Ruth too. We're done. We can go now early and watch the Eagles' premier soccer game. No. <laughs> That now let's go to Ruth chapter 2, and I will read that in its entirety. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. 
So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work with me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you, richly, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Don't pull out, uh, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned, so Ruth me, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it mounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work with him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the woman of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvesters were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these words of life and truth. I just pray that we will all be encouraged today from the knowledge of your great love and plan of redemption. Please help us see you working in our lives and increase our faith and trust in you. Okay. So what are some observations uh, from these passages? In the first chapter, <clears throat> Ruth honored her mother-in-law by clinging to her and returning home uh, with her. Again, in this chapter, Ruth has distinguished herself by, uh, of honoring her mother-in-law by going into the field to glean food. And this is surprising in this culture right? um, that she extends the obligation of honoring uh, one's parent to her mother-in-law. Okay? Some scholars suggest Naomi uh, adopted Ruth um, 
as a uh, as her daughter. Now, don't know. My mother-in-law never considered me her son-in-law. She considered me her son, which meant a lot to me. But Ruth has gone beyond the letter of the law to its very spirit by honoring her mother-in-law in this way, which what is what Jesus did many, many times in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Ruth went to glean food. The Old Testament law, um, God demanded that at harvest time, the men were not to reap into every corner of the field and not pick up what was left or if a sheaf was forgotten. And uh, this is, you can read about this in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. God wanted His people to show compassion for the poor and needy. This was a part of the intent of the law. So we see in verse 2, Ruth recognizes that to exercise this right depended on finding favor. The corrupt man or the uh, disobedient man um, could neglect this duty and do as he saw fit, which is part of the, the, the days uh, they were living in. And there was also the possibility that Ruth could be harmed. But in verse 3, as it turns out, interesting phrase, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Boaz, this wealthy landowner, a clan of Naomi's deceased husband, more than just a nice guy, but will play a significant role in the Grand Weaver's story. Of all the fields around, all the fields, Ruth is in Boaz's field. As it turns out, chance by chance, happy accident, as luck would have it, a great coincidence. Or, once again, hidden in the wings, the Lord is at work. Furthermore, a farmer might be unwilling to protect somebody, we already mentioned, in the, in the field and find ways around God's law, but Boaz obeys the letter of the law and, its, uh, and fulfills its intention. He demonstrates his nobility by arranging matters so that Ruth can glean in the field undisturbed by other male workers, provides proper uh, food and excellent working conditions for her. Um, keep in mind that Ruth Stannis is very close to what we call an illegal alien. Okay? Uh, she didn't have a proper passport. She didn't have legal protection. Uh, she was at considerable risk um, when she went to glean around young male harvesters. She was fair game. But Boaz allows her bold request to gather among the sheaves, offers her protection, assists her productivity by allowing her to drink from the water that others drew, provides her with lunch, lunch and ensures that she has enough grain to return to Naomi. This ephah is about 30 pounds and is equivalent to half a month's normal wage, it would be enough to feed Ruth and Naomi for about two weeks. And, um, and as she continued to glean, there would be enough there that she could sell and meet other basic needs. So, we have Boaz here. He's seen as considerate, tender, compassionate, generous, and kind. This was a kind of attitude that God's law was intended to promote. And Ruth was amazed at this and asked in verse 10, Why have I found such favor? Now, scholars say this word favor 
describes the unmerited mercy which God shows to us, His children. It's the response of God's children to Him, to one another, and then to all. Ruth recognized Boaz's godlike character and a true servant of God. Fathers want their daughters to marry men like Boaz. He's bona fide. He's a suitor. <laughs> Boaz recognized the same in Ruth. By a foreigner, by race, she converted to the religion of Israel and deserves his blessing because she has demonstrated her faith in what she has done for Naomi. Another lesson is the faithful care of, of God for his children, even in hard times. Ruth was a widow, a Moabite widow. In this world, a widow without a family is in danger. Often they were poor, and they depended on the charity of others. Many were forced to turn to prostitution since their bodies were the only resource they could sell. Ruth was an alien and friendless in a foreign land. She must have been under great emotional strain having lost her husband. As a recent convert, her faith is being tested. She must have been filled uh, with the doubts and fears. I hope this doesn't sound familiar, familiar to you this morning, but if it does, hang on. Sometimes we find ourselves, as C.S. Lewis wrote, in enemy-occupied territory. But how does God meet Ruth's needs? Does He give her a miracle? Automatic food? Protection? First, she takes the initiative. She acts and takes the initiative. Let me go out to the field. This proved to be part of God's guidance for her. She did what she could do and left what she could not do in the hands of God. And God worked in her circumstances. Not in a miraculous way, but in very small ways here. Again, He did not suddenly deliver her, but met her where she was. And she trusted Him in the middle of these needs. Had faith and hope in this uncertain world. Boaz's words in verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now we get to some fancy scholar stuff I read. Um, This reference to Ruth's act of leaving her homeland and return um, with Naomi um, to the people she had not known before as some scholars suggest, is an intertextual echo of the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. An intertextual echo, a shaping of a text's meaning by another text, by using another text. So like Abraham, Ruth leaves all that she had previously held dear for a journey of uncertain circumstances. But most striking for our purposes are the terms of the blessing that Boaz speaks over her. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This reference to seeking refuge um, under the wings of God is a favorite image of, um, in Psalms. In Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4, 
Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. In Psalms 36, 7-9, through 9, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God! People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In Psalm 57, verse 1. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Now the image of taking refuge under the wings of the Almighty, some scholars um, suggest, derives from the architectural design of the temple in Jerusalem. In the Holy of Holies, where the God of Israel has taken up residence among His people, He uh, was said to have assumed His seat upon the Ark of the Covenant, which was flanked by winged cherubim. Certain texts from the Old Testament speak of individuals seeking refuge beside the altar from the uh, danger uh, threatened by their enemies. So one level of meaning to Boaz's blessing is that he compares Ruth to an endangered person who has sought asylum under the protecting wings of the God of Israel. Interestingly enough, I read um, Boaz is the name of one of two pillars that sat across the entranceway of the temple in Jerusalem. So, if Boaz's name is an allusion to the pillar of the temple, then his blessing, as some say, points in two directions. On the one hand, Ruth's remarkable pilgrimage to Israel shall be rewarded by God's own protective oversight, but on the other hand, the offer of that divine assistance will be mediated in some way, um, yet undiscovered manner, by Boaz. So, the meaning for us, if we are in these hard times, if we find ourselves, and we do find ourselves, in enemy-occupied territory, for us, we need to take refuge in the Lord. We see in Romans 8, that as we take refuge under the Lord's wings, we will be called to live in the confidence that God, who did not spare His own Son, gave Him up for all of us, will graciously give us all things we need as we face the all things of this life. So, back to Ruth. She, she's glean, she gleans all day. She's protected. She's given lunch. In verse 17, she's carrying this huge sack of grain back to Naomi. Uh, and what's left over from her lunch? What a day. Now, Naomi, or her new name Mara, or Bitter, has been sitting home alone all day. Okay. Pity party. Um, is she worried about Ruth? Is she worried about her future? And then she sees Ruth walk through the door, tired probably from carrying all that grain. Score! Okay. Yes! Her mother-in-law... Asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man 
who took notice of you. So all of this played out in the excitement of Naomi when she hears about Boaz and realizes that he is one of our guardian redeemers. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Then she added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. So Naomi has gone to bitterness, to blessedness. Been, been home alone all day. She's been sorrowful. She's been suffering. But in the middle of all this, God was plotting for her satisfaction. Right. Do you believe that He's doing the same for you today? Has He already done it? Is that the hope we cling to at this time of Advent? The last chapter, a verse in chapter 2, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay? Anticlimactic? What's next? Where's Boaz? Let's get this show on the road. She lived with her mother-in-law. She's a Moabite. She's been in Ruth's field, uh, Boaz's field, for the whole harvest time. They have food, but they still need the work of a Redeemer. But they have found at least one of their guardian Redeemers. By chance, right? As luck would have it. Or the Grand Weaver at work. So, before I uh, go on to talk about the Guardian Redeemer, I want to briefly mention what Kendrick and, and Jared um, talked about, uh, some uh, key word in Ruth, this idea of kindness. And um, try not to spit all over the podium. Um, a translation of the Hebrew word chesed, <laughs> meaning, meaning loyal love. Um, yeah, chesed, that's what I'll say. Um, Covenant love. Um, the Lord, this covenant love that the Lord has committed um, Himself to show, showing to His people. It's a Hebrew word uh, that no one English word can uh, convey accurately. Uh, being expressed of relationships, the term connotes covenantal loyalty, uh, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, and compassion. Kind of reminds you of the fruit of the Spirit. It comes from God because it is a characteristic of God. God is the one who models Hesed to us. But it's ironic, I guess, that a Moabite, okay, again, Israelites and Moabites, they're, they're not on the best of terms. Ruth, a Moabite, clearly manifests Hesed in the book. She restores um, Naomi's uh, emptiness to fullness. And, and through this selfless act of loyal love or hesed. Now, Boaz does the same thing, but the, uh, the story of Ruth is the outworking of the Lord's kindness. Uh, and he sets in place the line into which the king, the people need, will be born. And this shows Ruth's place in the unfolding story of the entire Bible after this. The guardian redeemer. All right, let's look at this guardian or kinsman redeemer. It's a Hebrew word that I read called goel, and I probably just messed that one up if um, we had a rabbi in our midst. It's translated close relative, and in some translations means to redeem. She's more of God than humans. But in Ruth, it describes the quality Boaz shows in 
um, in compassion with the, compared to that other Redeemer, Mr. Anonymous, that we'll see in chapter 4, um, has a strong and deep-rooted cultural meaning, and it makes it difficult to translate. Um, the identity is in what he does. A goal is someone who, or goel is someone who goals, or the redeemer redeems. What I read. <laughs> it's a legal term for one who has an obligation to redeem a relative in a difficult, serious um, situation. And you can read about it. We're not going to show this, but you can read about it in Leviticus 25. Uh, the Hebrew word translated kinsman redeemer or family redeemer. Okay. A quick summary. Fellow Israelite becomes poor, sells property. The nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If they don't have a redeemer, they can require it back after redeeming, uh, refunding the balance. If you do not have the means to repay, it will return to you on the year of Jubilee if you can wait that long. It's uh, the year after seven cycles of sabbatical years, every 49 or 50 years, they say. Jubilee deals largely with land, property, and property rights. According to Leviticus, slaves and prisoners would be freed, uh, debts would be forgiven, and the mercies of God would be particularly manifest. College students, I know you wish you had a year of Jubilee when you're facing all these debts. But, uh, a guardian redeemer is a close, influential um, relative um, whom who members of the extended family could turn to for help. Usually when the family line or possessions were in danger of being lost. So it's not necessarily a familiar concept, perhaps to us, especially when you're talking about, you know, your older brother, he's, he died and you're going to have to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. Um, you, uh, you're going to have to continue on the family line. But, but it, it does mean uh, you know, time, tough times financially with property possessions. The, the, it, I'm going to tell you this story. Um, it's the only way I can... It's a weak comparison. It's a weak illustration um, of how uh, I can relate to uh, at least losing some property. Um, when I was 16, uh, my grandfather Bear was selling his 65 Buick LeSabre. This was a sweet ride. I asked him if I could have it, being his grandson. He said, nine. Nine dollars? No, that's German for no. But he would be happy, this shrewd businessman, this shrewd German businessman would be happy to negotiate a price with me, his, his grandson. And so we did. And we agreed on a price. And um, even as his grandson, there was literally no free ride. Anyway, teenage boys, we love our cars, and I made some modifications, a stereo system, shag carpet, CB, put a loudspeaker underneath the hood. Beautiful. I mean, it was... <laughs> However, it needed some work. It needed some work. Um, uh, we needed to replace a water pump. And so my dad and I went to a, a parts store, and we got a refurbished, okay, water pump. And so we put it in. Um, about a week later, I was driving back from West Monroe over the I-20 bridge um, late at night and uh, started to see some smoke coming out of the underneath the hood. And I mean, it was smoky. It was smoking really bad. I looked at my engine light. I, nothing was alerting me. 
You know, um, overheating light. Nothing was alerting me. The lights weren't on. Um, anyway, I couldn't pull over on the bridge. I mean, I couldn't stop on the bridge, so I had to pull over. And when, and when I eventually uh, got to a place, turned the uh, ignition off, the car kept... It was dying. It was burning up. Um, I thought it was going to explode. I went uh, a safe distance and watched my car die. Okay. <laughs> The engine was completely burned. The pistons were froze. Um, it, I was heartbroken. The place where we bought the water pump was not sympathetic. Even though it was faulty, if it was, and the mechanic, um, when we eventually towed it to the mechanic, said, yeah, the, something was the matter with the uh, water pump, but your sensor should have alerted you to something. And they didn't. Anyway, I told my grandfather the story. Now, I didn't, get a, I didn't cry. I didn't get emotional. You don't do that with that man. Um, you lay out the facts in logical fashion. And he thought for a minute, and he says, you know, the, the engine was going to cost $800 to re, uh, replace. I didn't have the money. He said, I will pay for it. It's a weak illustration of what a guardian redeemer um, the, uh, would do when a family lost land or possessions. But that's all I got on that. So, the guardian redeemer, according to Leviticus, would buy back family um, land sold during a crisis or enslaved relatives. Even in numbers, you can avenge the killing of a relative. You can be a blood redeemer. Wow. But it goes even further when, as I mentioned, providing an heir for a dead brother in Deuteronomy 25, for example. I don't want to steal um, um, the next uh, uh, Stogner's uh, Thunder or whoever's preaching in uh, uh, Ruth chapter 4, but uh, just a little bit about this. The providing an heir for a dead brother. The provision aimed at preserving the name and family line of the deceased relative. Um, and the custom illustrates here how central genealogy was in that culture. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, uh, In marriage you are a link in the chain of generations which God causes to come and to pass away to His glory and cause into His kingdom. So, preserving the family line. So important in this culture. Uh, it gives, the, uh, gives us the concept of the leverate marriage. The lever is Latin for brother-in-law. Uh, the leverate marriage is described in the legal text in Deuteronomy. If a man died leaving a, um, without leaving a male heir, the widow was to marry within the husband's family. Moreover, the husband's brother, the widow's brother-in-law, was required to perform the duty of the lever to marry the woman and to produce a son. The leverite marriage was linked to laws of inheritance so that any offspring from the husband's brother were considered children of the deceased, not his. So the firstborn son would take the name of the dead former husband and the property of the deceased. Now, the brother-in-law didn't have to do this. If he refused, she could then humiliate him publicly and then was allowed to marry outside the family. So again, the primary purpose of this marriage law was to protect the widow and help compensate the deceased husband's family for their personal loss. In Naomi's case, since she was beyond childbearing age, the leveret marriage would be to her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. So, Boaz plays both uh, the role of the redeemer lever. 
Okay? These two institutions were uniquely combined in, in the book of Ruth. So, Naomi recognizes God's kindness or hesed in the person of Boaz, who was one of her guardian redeemers. Naomi hoped that Boaz would accept his dual responsibility as her close relative to redeem Naomi's land, which she had sold in her destitute condition. And the second was to marry uh, Ruth, continuing the name of Ruth's dead husband. The idea of the guardian redeemer um, is used at times to refer to God and redemption of Israel. In Exodus chapter 6, 6 through 8. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give, I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Job 19, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, He will stand on the earth. And again, Jared talked about this, the contrast between Job's attitude and Naomi's. Psalms 19, verse 14. May the words of my mouth and, the medita and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in Your sight, Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Again, Psalm 69, verse 18. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me from my foes. And Isaiah, there's many, but I've just chosen a few. Isaiah 43.1 But now, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, He who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by My name. You are Mine. So God is Israel's nearest Redeemer, stepping in to bring back the, the nation, back, to, back into the family, time and time again. The people could not do it for themselves. This idea of the Redeemer, the Word, finds ultimate fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah. In Isaiah 59, 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. What does the guardian Redeemer mean to us today? Well, Jesus is our near guardian who came to buy us back into God's family. And so we see this in the New Testament. The concept is reflected in the various words for redeem, which suggests paying a ransom, making a purchase, saving from loss, to redeem, to buy back, repurchase, to get back or win back, to free from what distresses or harms, such as to free from captivity by payment or ransom, doesn't that sound good? Ruth is a love story, yes. But Boaz here is seen as foreshadowing the work of Jesus, this guardian redeemer, obligation to redeem a relative in a difficult situation. Jesus is our redeemer. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels He helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that He might make atonement for the sins of the people. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So Jesus has truly become our brother. That He might pay the price to redeem us as family members who could not do it on our own, could not make it without His help. He has become our refuge. He has satisfied our longing. And the Lord of the harvest has invited you and me to feast at His table. Not only has invited you, but has brought us to His table. Stay in His field. Other fields may look enticing. They may look fun and satisfying, but there is harm and destruction. As Ruth stayed in Boaz's field, we stay in Jesus, with Jesus. Other fields will leave you empty. There's no hope there. There's no Redeemer there. Stay in the field of the Lord and wait patiently for your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That's what we do in this season of Advent and all seasons. There is nowhere else to go for this hope of redemption. Let's pray. We bring ourselves before You, Lord, to humbly ask for Your cleansing power in our hearts. We need You more than ever. Take away the brokenness that there is and cleanse it. Take whatever hopes and dreams we have and make them Yours. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart ever be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we pray for every young man and woman here, especially for those struggling with worth and value, wondering what is ever going to come of their lives. Lord, You took people who considered themselves totally broken and made them Your servants for Your cause. You've taken the weak of this world to confound the wise. The simple to deal with the complex. Lord, we're, we're a troubled world. You're a man of sorrows and acquaint, acquainted with grief. You were bruised for our iniquities and wounded for our transgressions. And by Your stripes, we are healed. Heal this land. Make it well again. But begin with us as we look forward to the coming of the Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.